Thank you all for coming out to this unique Wish You Were Here uh, talk with the artist duo Anderson and Lowe. Uh, I say it's unique because we don't often get to have an exhibition accompany uh, one of our uh, Wish You Were Here talks. So we're really uh, happy to be able to have uh, both uh, the artists here today to uh, speak about the work in the exhibition and a little more broadly about their practice in general. Uh, my name is Nick Marshall. I'm the manager of exhibitions and programs here at the George Eastman Museum. Uh, and I am going to be very brief, you probably won't think so, uh, in my introduction because I, I do want the artist to, to have as much time as possible to present. Uh, but first, uh, I, I want a little background on the series. The Wish You Were Here series is in its 19th year and has always been generously sponsored by Dr. Thomas Tischer. We're grateful to have Tom here with us this afternoon, so please join me. With a round of applause, thank him for his continued support across the museum. Thank you, Tom. So if you weren't here last night for the exhibition preview, I'll quickly bring you up to date. Uh, a couple years ago, we approached Jonathan Anderson and Edwin Lowe about exhibiting their uh, recent body of work, Voyages, in our main galleries, and we were thrilled when they agreed to participate. The photographs and voyages set the viewer adrift on ships in unidentifiable atmospheres at undetermined times, truly journeys into the unknown. On closer examination, elements of the photographs start to reveal themselves in the model ships from the British Science Museum that were photographed in their plastic storage containers begin to surface, altering our perception of time, place, and fact versus fiction. In addition to the Voyages work, we asked the artists to make selections from our collection that they felt had connections with their work to display in the two smaller galleries that uh, flank the larger space that we refer to as the Brackett Clark Gallery. Um, after a couple visits to the museum, uh, Anderson and Lowe realized that there were threads connecting not just the Voyages series to the museum's collection, but a great deal of their other projects shared common ideas and inquiries with many of these objects spanning the history of photography's existence. Today, Anderson and Lowe will share with you some of those links they found as well as others that are not on view simply because uh, the galleries aren't big enough to hold everything. Um, so it's great that we'll be able to kind of get a little deeper dive into some of their thought process uh, as they were going through the collection and just their thought process as artists as well. Uh, after the talk, please join us in the main galleries uh, to chat with the artists and uh, get a book signed if you'd like. Books are for sale in the museum store, so stop by and, and check that out. Um, so I'm going to turn it over now to Jonathan. So please join me in welcoming Jonathan Anderson, Edwin Love. Thank you very much indeed. I'm Jonathan Anderson. This is Edwin Lowe. We'll both take questions, but we thought in the end we were going to share the lecture, and then we thought maybe we'll just alternate words or something. But uh, we decided in the end that just one voice would probably be um, marginally less incoherent. Um, and so, um, if you'll forgive me, I'm, 
My eyes are fine, actually. It's just that my arms are no longer long enough to hold anything where I can read it. Um, it it's, gosh, what a full house. Um, it's, you know, there's nothing more depressing than lecturing at a university and the first 50 rows are empty and everyone is sitting in the back three rows. And so it's really nice that, well, mind you, I think if you all sat in the back three rows, I could take some really interesting photographs. But thank you very much indeed for uh, filling up this place so, so wonderfully. Um, we thought the way to start would probably be to just talk a little bit about some ideas and some practices of ours because we are relatively unusual artists in one regard. You will see in the exhibition and you'll also see in this slideshow, stylistically we mutate, we completely change from project to project. And that is not actually terribly common practice. Normally an artist has a particular style and they stick with that and then they apply it to all these different themes. We take the opposite approach. We want to find the best language to maximize the expression of what we want to see, uh, want to say for each new project. So stylistically, we reinvent ourselves a lot. And that can lead to confusion. But actually, if you look at the ideas behind the projects, it tends to be the same things coming back again and again and again. So although we're using a different language, what we're trying to do is always look at these same ideas. Um, we're very interested in ideas of fantasy versus reality. Um, we like to explore the nuances of perception and ask people what I'm really, you know, what am I really looking at? Challenge people's expectations of photography. Um, I, don't, I don't know that we deliberately try and challenge these, but if we're trying to find the best language for a project, and we, it means we step outside of the normal parameters of what people expect a photograph to do, then we do that. So we end up challenging people's ideas of photography quite a lot and asking this repeated question, what am I really looking at? Um, we're very interested in ideas of implied storytelling. That's to say, we, we like to make images which leave the viewer to invent the rest of the story. It may give you a hint, it may give you an introduction, but then it's up to you to take that extra, extra journey. And a recurrent theme through this whole talk is going to be that if you look in the world in a different way, it can lead to truly, truly amazing journeys. And lastly, perhaps, just say that the museum collection here that we had to negotiate of over 400,000 prints is truly one of the great treasures of the world. Actually, this theater has great history to it. When the first wide-angle, really, really wide-angle cinema um, film was introduced, the reason this, there's this curved cyclorama, these, these curtains pull all the way back this was one of the first places that could show it. So even here, you're sitting in a piece of history. Uh, and everything about this place is, is just riddled with these wonderful legacies and stories and anecdotes and fascinating discoveries. And we're going to take you on a journey, um, partly to do with this exhibition and partly to do with things that didn't make it into the exhibition, as Nick was saying. We could have made the exhibition 20 times as large. Honestly, there is such... We were like kids in a candy store downstairs. Um, you know, uh, we had such incredible help in negotiating this daunting but quite wonderful Aladdin's cave. Uh, one of the things putting this exhibition together was it made us really ask when we started looking at the world differently. And it turns out when we thought about it, and we never thought about it before we were asked to do this lecture, 
actually we probably always didn't look at things in the same way. We first got well known for working with sport and using sport as a recurrent muse in our work. Uh, looking at the human condition, look at human hopes, dreams, despair, aspirations, perseverance, endurance, all the things you see in the training halls, not in competition. Um, and maybe we didn't realize at the time that we had this different view of the world, but we probably did. And that's maybe why our sporting work became so well recognized. And um, we were official artists for London 2012 and lots of other things as well. Um, and it's kind of a weird moment right now because we've got six bodies of work in the museum here. There's another six bodies of work relating to sport in a gallery in New York. So it's, it's, it's just a, a very, very unusual time for us right now. And uh, if you go down to New York, to Throckmorton Fine Art has got some of those works on display. But anyway, we're mainly here to talk about voyages and the work that arose as a result, the exhibition that arose as a result. And what I'd like to start by doing is asking if any of you remember the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember that final scene where the Ark of the Covenant is being wheeled into this enormous warehouse. Well, museum warehouses really, they, they tend to have more walls than that and more climate control, but nonetheless, uh, that is pretty much the scale. Um, and we were walking through the storage unit of the Science Museum in London uh, for completely unrelated reasons to what transpired. And we came across their ship model collection. And the ship model collections, all the ships were in crates, and the sides and the ends of the crates were not wood, they were plastic. So you could look through and you could sort of see the ships. And what happened was we were looking at this and there was just something strange and hypnotic about the way they looked, but we couldn't quite put our finger on it. And then what happened was Edwin took a snapshot on the cell phone and he looked at this and it was as though a, an electric shock had gone through him. He was, he was just absolutely astounded by what he saw and he called me over and I looked as well and we realised that the plastic was doing something quite amazing. It was focusing not on the structure and the obsessive detail that all the ship model makers love to put in quite correctly to their, their, their works. All of that was obscured by the, uh, the plastic, but there was also no sense of scale. So they looked like real ships, and they looked like real ships at sea, and they looked like uh, paintings of real ships at sea. So we went to the Science Museum and we said, we got a great idea for an art project, we want to photograph all your model ships. And they said, that's wonderful, we'll take them all out of the crates for you. <laughs> and we said, please don't do that or we won't photograph them. And there was a kind of a back and forth and a back and forth and a back and forth. And eventually they agreed to let us photograph them in the crates with the plastic on the shelves exactly where they were and not change anything at all. They thought we were completely crazy. Even when we were photographing them, there was a series of panic phone calls to the director's office asking if we should be stopped because we were doing all the wrong things. I mean, nobody does this without, well, are they damaging them? Well, no, they can't damage them. They're not moving them. They're in the crates. There's, but there's plastic in the way. It's all wrong. Just let them do it. Okay. You, you, you can't really blame them. Um, it is an absurd idea, but as Albert Einstein said, if an idea is not at first absurd, then there's really no hope for it. Um, so the result of this was a series of... And, and they really don't look like photographs. They do look like paintings. It, you know, we were obviously, as we were making these, we were thinking of... Turner, naturally, Ivozovsky, Aschenbach, all these great 
wonderful painters. We were also thinking about music, Benjamin Britten, uh, Peter Grimes, you know, Ravel, Debussy, all these people who composed about the sea. We were thinking about literature, Conrad, Melville, you know, Moby Dick, all, all these, uh, uh, Horatio Hornblower, all these adventures, uh, High Wind in Jamaica, all, all, the, all these ideas of voyages and quests. We're thinking about mythology, we're thinking about Odysseus tied to the mast, listening to the Song of the Sirens, um, thinking about uh, the Marie Celeste, we're thinking about the Flying Dutchman. All of this was cascading through our heads while we're photographing these, and in a sense, you are actually hearing what we heard as much as seeing what we saw. Those murmurs and whispers became really, really prevalent and over overwhelming. Um, and perhaps if they've got this kind of historical, you know, sense of continuum with literature and with music and with art, then that's the, that's the reason. So um, this forms the centre of our exhibition, and everything else we're going to talk about spirals out from this. And everything else that's on, on show in the exhibition spirals out from this. There's a quote in the exhibition, and it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about. The real voyage of discovery is not seeking new landscapes, but having new eyes. And if you think about it, the Aladdin's cave, that treasure trove that we found, it was there for anyone to see. For seven years after they were taken out of exhibition, these ship models sat there in the crates, through the plastic. Anyone could have seen them the way we saw them, and nobody did. They saw them as ship, ship models stored in crates wrapped in plastic, and we saw them as these kind of creatures having these passionate inner lives and these mythic quests and epic adventures. Anyone could have found this. All they had to do was take a snap on their phone and look at it but nobody saw it the way we did. And the world, uh, as, as Yeats said, the world truly is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. And perhaps we were lucky enough that we, we, found, we, we've, we found a way to keep our senses sharp over the years, and so we just saw things slightly differently from other people. You know, it's, it's very easy to get obsessed with the idea that we did something that is basically a dumbass idea. We photographed ship models in crates through plastic. But the point is not what we did, it's why we did it. And we really knew exactly why we wanted to do it. And it's worth remembering what Leonardo da Vinci said. The painter who draws merely by practice and by eye without reason is like a mirror that just copies anything in front of it without being conscious of its existence. And we wanted to make sure that we went beyond just representing the ship models as they were and showing something passionate of their inner lives. So that brings us to the collection of the Eastman Museum. Oh my lord, where do you start with 400,000 objects? Well, the first thing you do is you contact a guy called Ross. Um, Ross Napper, who's the collections manager, and Lisa Hostedler, between them, managed to steer us through... I, I'm not going to say they were ch stormy waters, but they were certainly... Um, they were certainly pretty, uh, pretty big oceans that we had to navigate, and we needed so much guidance. Um, they were both pretty amazing. Um, and Ross would, Ross would um, I mean, he started out bringing us very straightforward volumes to do with voyages, like the Kansas Pacific Railroad or exploring the Arctic, this kind of thing. And we kept on being not wholly satisfied. And we, we explained to him, Ross, what, what we're looking at 
What we want to find are inner journeys about not viewing a new landscape, but having new eyes, looking at the world in a different way, conceptually, methodologically, you know, just doing things that hadn't been done before, or that are a totally unique way, totally original way of looking at the world. Um, we're going to start not with, perhaps not with the, um, in the exhibition order, because we're going to start with the last room, which is full of extraordinary objects. And the first one we want to talk about is a Lippmann plate. Um, now, I'm guessing that most of you may not know what this is. Before 1900, in 1870, ooh, where, 1870, 1891, I beg your pardon, Gabriel Lippmann, a Frenchman, revealed an extraordinary technique for doing something that sounds impossible. What he did was he found a way to make true color positive images out of one single black and white negative, which makes no sense at all if you think about it. It's completely impossible, except he realized that there was a way to use interference. If you put a mirror behind the negative, you could use the interference pattern to make light like a rainbow in a soap bubble. So the different interference patterns for the different colors would be replicated and positive. And when you see this in real life, and you have to forgive me, this is a very crude representation because it was done originally for our reference and not for presentation. But when you actually see this happen, oh, that went backwards, I don't know why. Let's do that again. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous. So I'm freezing it there. This is a cruddy black and white negative. It's not even a very good looking black and white negative. And it goes into this brilliant, hypersaturated, kind of 1950s magazine style color. It's, it's just the most amazing. It's breathtaking. This is of the gardens of Versailles. And this is in exhibition, this plate. But for conservation reasons, sadly, they cannot actually show it um, doing what I've shown here. However. Um, one of the staff here, Nick Brandreth, um, who is a very, very, very clever individual, has found a way to do a modern Lippmann plate. So what we have on exhibition that you can see change from black and white to color is the gardens of the Eastman House. And you'll be able to see that in the exhibition. And one of the reasons we became obsessed with this, obviously it's totally counterintuitive, and that's something that really struck us. It, it made no sense to us. It took us a long time to understand how you can, how such a process can work. Um, but also, this is a perfect metaphor for the Voyages exhibition, because just by shifting your gaze very, very slightly, you get a completely different magical world revealed. It's the perfect analogy. The next one we wanted to talk about is an object with the silliest name in the world, which is a megalethoscope. <laughs> And this was invented in 1862 by Carlos Ponti. And what this is, is um, if you look at this, this is an albumin print. And if you look, give me while I just get the pointer. If you look here, you can see that it appears to be full of holes. Um, the thing is, that's what it looks like when lit from the front. But when you light it from the back, it does rather change, and this fairy tale world is revealed. I mean, it, and you suddenly realize that all of those, what look like wormholes, all of these are so the light can come through from behind. 
and you've got this wonderful painted, but I mean, you know, the whole thing is so fantastic on fairy tale like. I, it, it really is the most wonderful object. And again, it's a wonderful metaphor for the idea that if you look at something differently, in this case, from by changing the light source, it reveals this other world. Similarly, um, there were these objects, um, someone told us this morning, you can find these on eBay still, um, called Stanhopes. And a Stanhope is a perfectly normal looking object, in this case a pen, except it's got a tiny little hole in it there. And through that hole, which has a lens in it, if you put your eye against it, there is a, an image for you to see, there's a photograph for you to see. And there were tons of these made in Victorian times. Um, and, you know, they've all got these tiny holes in. They're, they're, they're extraordinary objects, they really are. Um, so the, the last room in the, in the uh, exhibition is filled with, uh, has these objects in them. And uh, we in, encourage you to play and enjoy them, because, uh, I mean, they really are. <laughs> they're really charming, and they're really quite spectacular. Um, particularly the Lippmann and the Megalethoscope are, are just amazing things. So one of the other themes we pursued was the idea of abstraction in photography. Now, as soon as you reduce anything three-dimensional to two-dimensional, you have to distort it. And in making those distortions, you're making decisions about presentation and representation. And it's something that photographers have played with um, from the beginning, really. Um, Frederick Evans is most famous probably for this image above all others, uh, the Sea of Steps, as he called it, um, in Wells Cathedral in the UK. Stieglitz championed this image repeatedly. He, he um, showed it at least twice in, uh, he printed it at least twice in the camera work. Um, and he was so fascinated by the tonal planes, these kind of changes, which he said completely anticipated the photo secession and all the modern, you know, increasing modernism and the works of Paul Strand and others. And this early representation of focusing in on the, uh, focusing in on a part of a building in order to show its true nature or its essence, um, he felt was, was highly, highly significant. Um, we've also, uh, it's something that we instinctively started to do ourselves. We've done a lot of architectural work, and this is an interior of ours of uh, uh, private residence which, as you can see, doesn't have many straight surfaces on it, apart from the stairs themselves, thankfully. Um, but again, we were trying to find a way to express the idea of this building. And the architect who built this told us that you're the only people who didn't try and show what my building looks like, and you are the only people who have shown what it looks like. We thought, okay, yep, that's, that's fine. That's fine. One of the other things that we came across, which sadly there isn't room to show, is the work of uh, Bill and Ken Hendricks, just, you know, it's, it's just sublime architectural work. And again, it's about what it feels like to be there in that situation, how it would make you feel. You know, just magnificent. This, this was a fascinating discovery, this piece, because this immediately made us think of James Terrell's um, uh, lithographs. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's really remarkably similar in some ways to his, to his lithographic work. Um, Anyway, as we were working more and more, and the, the Tyrell, of course, is not in the exhibition either, and neither, neither are the architectural works we just showed you uh, by, the Hen by the Hendricks team, um, we, we created a series called Abstraction, which was very much about looking at these details of architecture and trying to find a way to express the essence of what we were looking at. 
Um, and they, they, they really look like folded pieces of paper that more than they look like real structures. They look more like architectural imaginings or equations than they do real structures. We also um, are showing some of the wonderful works by Brugier, um, and these are just made with folded pieces of paper, nothing else. I mean, it's, it's, it's sublime work. It's so beautiful. Just these rapturous shapes. I mean, it, it's like Giorgio O'Keefe, or I, I don't even know what it's like, it, but they're, they're so wonderful to experience, and we're very glad to have some of these on show, and it's a really unique way of making abstract work. Um, we also show Alvin Langdon Coburn's Vortographs, and he did the, this um, in response to the Vorticist movement in the UK, which we talk a bit more about later in the in the lecture. And um, here he's he's putting prisms and other ob uh, glass objects and so forth in front of the the camera in order to distort the image and pr provide these dynamic and and very beautiful um, prismatic effects, uh, kaleidoscopic effects. And again, we found that real analogies between this kind of work and some of our abstraction series in terms of the way tonal planes were being used and images were being constructed. One of the other things we're showing in the exhibition are photograms by Maholi Naj and Man Ray. Um, just wonderful, powerful images made simply by placing objects on, on the photo paper and switching the light on. And, and they were, oh my gosh, they're so powerful and so beautiful. Um, and you know, it, it's incredibly simple work, but at the time quite revolutionary to treat imagery in this manner. Some of the things laying on the paper, some of them coming off the paper, and producing just wondrous results of graphic form and shape. We also, in the same series, and this may surprise you a little, um, have Gustave Le Gray. And of course, Gustave Le Gray is well known for being the first person to actually present on, 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 a, on, a, on a print, a photographic print, both sea and sky, or both land and sky, without bleached out sky, as you had in all the 19th century work. Um, so the, uh, you know, this is pre-digital manipulation of images by masking out um, so that things don't get burnt out and so, so on and so forth. But um, what interested us about it was how close this was to abstraction, because you really have two tonal planes. So rather than including this with you know looking at the world differently because he was the first person to show the sky, what interested us was the fact that there were really only two tonal components to this. So we were thinking about and have put it next to the work of Alison Rossiter, who took out-of-date photo paper, painted developer on it, exposed it to light, and then um, developed it. Um, and it made us and it also made us think about Sugimoto's seascapes very much, where again you have this same division. And it, and beyond that, it actually also made us think about Marth Rothko's grey on black series and it's you know that's a slightly unusual analogy but we find it an extremely strong one um, and maybe that's just because we don't really know our art history properly and we do all the wrong things which is how we end up photographing ship models in crates um, but one of the other series which we, we're not showing in the exhibition sadly um, uh, Eco Jose's wonderful mini graphs and these were originally just test prints he was doing um, based around the human form 
but he actually suddenly realized that there was virtue in them, in themselves, that they were actually beautiful objects. And so he signed them and, um, you know, he annotated them one of one, because it's, of course, un you can't replicate it. Um, and, and he made them into works of art in their own rights. And it made us think about, um, sorry, it made us, I've just gone the wrong way, uh, it made us think about a series of our own work. Uh, called, um, so um, I know this looks like a Hokusai wave, but this is actually the back of someone with a whole body tattoo. And we were, we were looking for a way to talk, talk about memory in photographs. And one, one of the ideas we came up with was imagine that you're, you, you, you're a bit hungover and you wake up and the sun's coming through the curtain and it strikes your lover's shoulder or the um, corner of a chair or something like this. And there's a kind of beautiful stillness and mystical resonance to that moment that you remember years later. And there's no logic for it, you, but it just felt like a perfect moment in time. So we started photographing the human form very close up, like this image of two shoulder blades. Um, and it's meant to have that intimacy, but it's also meant to be slightly ephemeral, that you can't quite kind of grasp it like a memory. Um, and we think of this very much as the counterpart to our abstraction series using the human form. but we felt that it, it was an interesting, I mean, we felt that the analogy with um, what Jose had done was really quite interesting. Um, some of the new process work, this work is actually in the exhibition. Um, although it's included in relation to a series about portraiture and the human body and representing the human body. Moving on to more conceptual ideas, um, Robert Heineken, came up with an extraordinary series of photograms, um, which he then turned into lithographic plates. And these are based around a menu. And the idea is of a typical American diner with um, middle class, you know, family going for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And each of, these, um, each of these photograms is made using the food that might be in such, such a meal. And he actually, the, the series comes with a menu so that you know what food is being used for each of them. And so this is very interesting because you've got this narrative element implied in the abstraction. And then there is the, the work of Yola Monikov Stockton, which I really have, I, I cannot praise highly enough. This is, this is truly original and I think quite brilliant work. What she did was she took a piece of photo paper, unexposed, she put it in a FedEx box, or other couriers are available, and she made a pinhole in the FedEx box and she mailed it to herself. And that is the journey. The, the, that, so every light source that it ever encountered, how long it, how bright the light was, how long it was there, everything is replicated in this. Now, I know that everyone is really, really, really curious, and I'm really curious too. So this is clearly a negative. Do you want to know what it looks like? which I'm sure is heretical in her terms because she wanted it left at the negative, otherwise she'd have made a contact print positive. But nonetheless, it's quite interesting to kind of begin to, and you can dissect all the light sources it went through. I don't know how many times she did this because there's an awful lot of different lights there. But, um, so I don't know whether it was one journey or several, but it, it's just such a brilliant, you know, this is such a brilliant way to 
talk about narrative, to, to, to show a journey, a whole journey in one picture, which, and, and at the same time, it's an entirely random, you, she has no control over how it's going to turn out. We also uh, looked at the work of Dr. James Dean, no relation to the other Dean, it's spelt differently. Um, and these are footprints in the Connecticut River Basin um, of dinosaurs. And they're almost completely abstract, but at the same time, they have this amazing narrative quality. I mean, you really want, where was this going, you know? And you can quite clearly see, you can sometimes see where they stop or where they turn around. And so, and, and so you've got this wonderful abstract element, but at the same time, you have these implied stories as well. And they're so beautiful, these. And, and you know, this book is, is just a, a wondrous thing. And, you know, you've got footprints of different sizes there. There's a gorgeous, uh, I mean, the plates in the book are just wonderful. It, it was such a privilege to spend time with it. And then uh, we also looked at the work of Len Gittleman, who did amazing serigraphs. These are um, silk screen prints based on moon images from Apollo 15. And um, again, they're, they're virtually abstract. He's abstracted them by these extreme treatments with color. Um, I mean, it is very 60s. It is very psychedelic. Um, but at the same time, it's much more than that. You've got a sense of implied narrative in the craters because they imply the meteorites, but you've got these wonderful, wild, abstract images derived from an entirely um, landscape-like source. I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful. The whole series is so wonderful. I mean, I wish we could have shown them all. I really do. Um, we uh, we only had room for one in the exhibition. So. One of the things that happened was some of the abstract work inspired us to make new works. So I need to take you through a particular project in order to explain this. So if you remember our abstraction series, we've got images like this. And we realized we could use these like building blocks to create a whole new universe. So what we did was we scanned all of the negatives and colorized them and manipulated them using uh, computer software, um, architectural software, uh, computer-generated imaging, 3D imaging, all that sort of thing, archi architectural software, and we outputted them as four-by-four-foot prints. So these small negatives became building blocks to create an entire new universe. So this image, for instance, became this. But it also became this. And initially, you might have a little trouble seeing the connection, but then when you look at the detail, you can see how it all came together, that it's actually derived from the same elements that have been manipulated and changed. So we, we produced this very vibrant and exuberant series, and they all had fantastical names. We referenced art, history, nature, mathematics, Fibonacci number sequences, uh, Islamic art, inevitably because of the geometry, um, surrealism, art, history, music, composition, theory, literature, every, everything. We threw everything into this project. And when they were finally exhibited, they were face-mounted to plexiglass. They, didn't, they don't even look like photographs. When you see them in a hall, they just look like these, these things. They, they look more like they could be from, I don't know, pop art or op art. They, they seem to have more in common with Bridget Riley or with, or with uh, Dan Flavin. 
than they do with uh, photography. And, and they were exhibited in many museums. Um, the Akron Museum showed it very, very flatteringly um, alongside Donald Judd and Sol LeWitt and many other people. So anyway, that's the Chrysalis Project. And what happened was Frederick Evans, who did the Sea of Steps, rather like us, was not a one-trick pony. He was also one of the pioneers of photomicroscopy. And this, which looks like a lace doily, is a cross-section of the spine of a sea urchin. The thing is, when we saw that, we thought about our chrysalis piece like that. And so we decided what we would do is we'd take the Evans micrograph and we'd we photographed it at very high resolution, manipulated it, colorized it, recreated it using computer-generated imaging, and outputted it as a 4 by 4 foot print, in, which is in the exhibition. So that became this. OK, so we've got this, and we've made a chrysalis piece out of it, which is chrysalis being the name of that series. And we decided we should go the other way as well. So if you look at the... Um, Evans photomicrographs of, you know, spine of echinus, lots of sea urchin spines. He seems to like them a lot, actually. And he's got these small prints, and he's written what they are underneath. So what we did with ten chrysalis pieces was we, having made them four by four foot prints, we then made them five inch salt prints which we did here, because this is where you come to do and learn salt printing. So Mark Osterman downstairs was our mentor for that. And so you'll see in the exhibition that we've taken um, a number of these chrysalis pieces and we've, mounted, uh, we've um, turned them back into salt prints. So having taken the 19th century and made it 21st century, we've now taken our 21st century and turned it back into a 19th century process. And, and we're really happy with the aesthetic of this. It involved a lot of recalibration because obviously if you've got a shade of blue and a shade of red and they're kind of similar, they'll look different in a color print, but in black and white, you can't really tell them apart. So we had to recalibrate the images a great deal in order to make these work aesthetically. But they really are very beautiful. And we've given them Latin names at the bottom to, to replicate the idea of what uh, Evans was doing in his album. And indeed, like most Victorians, would always put the Latin name under whatever specimen they were looking at. The other thing about this was it, we saw immediate analogies with another body of work of scientific derivation by Dr. Edwin Jelly, who worked for a company called Kodak that you may have heard of. <laughs> and so, um, and these were originally uh, autochromes, but they have replicas of the autochromes that are illuminated, so you can see them next to the chrysalis salt prints, and also next to the Evans micrograph. I mean, these were very, you know, this is 1930s. This isn't recent. I mean, for its time, this is, this is really cutting-edge stuff that they were doing. It's just wonderful, very, very beautiful work. And it also highlights, incidentally, something we care about a great deal, which is the artificial schism between art and science, which we think is completely ridiculous and we don't take any notice of. And you've probably realized from the way we're talking about work that we're, we're just jumping back and forth between what would, be cons what would constitute art and what would constitute science. And we don't care. We really don't care at all. And we encourage you to lose those shackles because we think that, you know, otherwise, you know, 
what kind of person would go, you know, what kind of artist goes to the storage of the science museum and looks at their ship model? I mean, that doesn't sound very promising at all. So, you know, it worked well for us, I must say. Um, so, one of the other things that we've been very interested in are these ideas of what's real and what's not real and what you're looking at and what you think you're looking at and reality and truth. Um, and one of the truly poetic bodies of work we came across is by Patrick Nagatani. And what he did was he invented a fictitious archaeologist called Ryoichi who is from the future and travels back in time and excavates 1950s automobiles and other decades, but 1950s automobiles from underneath known archaeological sites. So you'll have Stonehenge and there's a 1950s Studebaker under it or something like that. Or in this case, these um, Volkswagen Beetles are supposed to be uh, just near the Terracotta Warriors. So he built these maquettes and he made this. And, and okay, this is a fanciful and rather ridiculous idea, but there's a, an extraordinary power and poetry in this. And he, as the character Ryoichi, he talks about being enthralled um, with the potential of of the universe to tell stories uh, and they're just they're just glorious you know this one I, th I can't remember where that is now um, and I, but they're, they're just beautiful beautiful work so we have four of these on show and we're also showing work by Laurie Nix who builds these wonderful maquettes um, slightly disturbing maquettes I have <coughs> to say um, which appear to be some kind of post-apocalyptic landscape so um, and there's uh, the one where the one we have in the exhibition is of a laundrette, which looks like there's just been a nuclear holocaust or something. Um, but they, she photographs them as though these are real buildings, and you've no way really of knowing because they're do they're done in considerable detail. You you really don't know that these are just tiny, you know, dioramas that she's produced. One of the other projects that we did, and we saw an immediate relation with. Laurie Nix's work and with the Nagatani's was to do with um, James Bond. Um, the, the, the reason Bond movies feel weighty and real is because they don't really use so much computer work as other films. They build stuff and they build it big and they build it in obsessive detail and it's all fake and even as the sets are built they're already scheduled for demolition which is quite a thought, actually, given what they're doing. So this, uh, which is uh, the Palazzo in Rome, um, now, if you look at this, what you've got, really, is a trompe ceiling turned upside down. So if you think about trompe ceilings, you know, you've got these wondrous illusions going up into the heavens above a real room. Here, you've got the exact opposite. That ceiling, with all the lighting rig and the bare sound studio, film studio, that's the reality. All these columns, all the floor, all the marble, all the chairs, everything is fake. The only thing that's real is the ceiling. So we've taken that idea and turned it upside down. Um, the secret room in, the, in that, obviously, when you see something like that, I, and the detail in this is insane. Look at the cobwebs on the light, the dust under the sink, everything. We, we, we couldn't show all of these prints in the exhibition. There isn't room. But for this, we're thinking about things like Dutch masters and you know these interiors. And obviously, you can see analogies for the way that it's lit and the way it's constructed to that. 
Um, some of the other works um, we're looking at, for instance, I w immediately we're thinking about Rembrandt painting and etching, you know, the use of light. So we, we just went through all these sets, thinking about, I'm here thinking about futurism and constructivism and so forth. Uh, here we were thinking about the vorticist movement that we mentioned before, these beautiful wonder, I and mean, these were all done for the London Underground, for goodness sake, to advertise the tube network, in, uh, the subway network in London. But they're so magical. This is a fun fair, and obviously that related to this this uh, image. So we, I mean, the one thing that was real, actually, so the cars, the boys' toys, they were real. And to see a, a classic chassis like that from a, a, an Aston Martin, I mean, is, is lovely. They even built Westminster Bridge in a sound studio. Those apparent buildings, those are giant photographs. I mean, because you can't really crash a helicopter under Westminster Bridge, people might talk, you know? Um, but, so this is very much, again, about looking at these ideas of constructed narratives, about fantasy, about reality. And all of these sets, they imply what's happened. They imply the story. And similarly, in the, in the museum, we were looking at the work of James Nes Naismith and his, you know, these amazing moonscape, which are, of course, all made of plaster of Paris. And he so they're not real photographs I mean they're not, they are real photographs they're not real moonscapes at all he did these from drawings and from telescopic um, imagery um, and he was, very, he was actually interested in showing what's turned out to be a, a, by and large a false theory um, the theory was that the craters on the moon are collapsed to volcanoes, all of them we now know that they're made by meteorites but they didn't know that at that time and he was talking about and this is actually the plate we have on exhibition. He was talking about how um, substances change, how structure changes with dehydration and with age. So he ha has this extraordinary plate where he's comparing the back of an elderly hand to a dried up apple. Um, one of the other works we couldn't show, but again, you know, what am I really looking at? Well, it's a sneaker, except it's made of cuttlefish. Um, and it's, it's just extraordinary now I've got a mental block so uh, Edwin help me out what's the name oh, thank you Mich Michio Kon Mich Michiko Kon um, it's, uh, this work is bonkers it really is so th we really wanted to show this one because this is a great one there's also this one these, these, these gloves uh, one's chicken skin and the other's made from the carapaces of uh, shellfish um, and then there's the uh, kendo mask which is a self-portrait as well. I mean, I mean, it's just extraordinary work. And, you know, already you can see just the range of what I've shown you from this collection. And the stuff they have down there is breathtaking. It really, truly is. Um, we're also very interested in ideas of portraiture and about how portraiture can be influenced by things like the... Uh, um, uh, can be influenced by, for instance costume or how you uh, how, how closely you photograph someone so this is again Frederick Evans the same guy who did the micrographs, the same guy who did the Sea of Steps great portraitist, this is Frederick Holland Day in um, Arab costume um, he's about as, well he's probably less Arabic than I am actually um, anyway and uh, Wonderful Hill and Adamson which is under a black cloth because it's a very delicate salt print but please lift it and have a look at this 
gentleman in, in, in Indian costume, a white gentleman in Indian costume. So here with costume and with these, I, you know, you're looking at what you can do with an image, how you can present someone. This beautiful hand, uh, it's an anonymous hand-tinted daguerreotype, which we're not showing again, sadly. Um, but it's, it's just a wondrous, wondrous object. We, Oscar Rylander's work, looking at these, you know, the, putting these negatives together to make these extraordinary tableaus. Um, the way Man Ray used solarization in his portraiture, an utterly brilliant self-portrait by Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, where he just put his face on the photo paper and then other objects as well and exposed it. I mean, it's, God, it's just wonderful. And, and that's in the exhibition. Also looking at the way he, we looked at, but don't show the way he used portraiture in uh, and the human form in some of his surrealist collages. And we are showing Claude Cahun uh, disavowals. And again, very important proto-feminist work looking at identity and self and being female in these very alarming um, and surreal and disturbing collages she made using her own image. Um, Jerry Ulsman, uh, his use of um, his use of uh, classical iconography. I mean, this is this is variations on a theme of Botticelli, and what he's thinking is what he's thinking of is Venus coming out of the shell. But obviously, this is a very radical representation. And Jerry Ulsman is one of the masters of pre-digital manipulation of negatives, because these are all composite negatives he's put together. We also looked at Victorian albums. Um, the Campbell album and the Bouvery album. Uh, this is Bouvery, I think. Yes, this is Bouvery. And um, you know, the, the people think that Photoshop was when it all started, and it really, truly wasn't. I, I mean, the level of uh, th this is this is a lot of work. I mean, you could argue this is someone with too much time on their hands, but no nonetheless, <laughs> the fact remains: these people have done just the most amazing job of finding inventive and creative ways to show their photographs. I mean, at times, I have to admit, they do remind me of the cartoons from Monty Python, but that's just because I'm a bit old. Um, I mean, it really is quite something, you know. Um, and then the work of um, Beato where, and, and uh, Baron uh, Steelfried, where they're, they're looking at, uh, they're, they're in Japan, and gosh, I mean, this is really delicate hand tinting to get a work to look like this. But they're photographing these people in kind of Japanese or Asian scenarios against backdrops and tableaus. And this reminded us of our Manga Dreams series uh, very much, which we're showing next to it. And Manga Dreams is about looking at the world in a different way. We were in Southeast Asia in 2004-2005, and the kids were suddenly having really spiky hair or hair flopping across their faces. So that you can't, they can't see where they're going. And we realized that this was the influence of Japanese comics on youth culture. And that was really interesting because, firstly, it's the first time in 100 years a visual art form is influencing youth culture. It's always music, jazz, rock and roll, the Beatles, grunge, psychedelia, punk, you name it. It's always the music that drove the, visual art, the uh, styling. And suddenly you have a visual art form inf influencing youth culture really in an extreme way. It's also about the fact that the Asian kids are no longer styling themselves on the West anymore. They've got an Asian paradigm. And in fact, the Western kids 
are styling themselves based on this more than the other way around. You know, so the the flow of influence has gone the other way. It's about contemporary dysmorphia, the fact that you know Seoul is now the plastic surgery capital of the world, and uh, you go to South Korea and you'll see the most beautiful boys and girls you'll ever see, with these perfect faces. And then you just wonder what's going to happen when they have kids, because none of the kids will look like either of them. Um, so we were thinking about all, the, all this stuff and, and we decided, so we headhunted kids from shopping malls and we said, look, we're going to take you into a studio, we have this idea for a crazy art project and we can promise you three things. One, it's a big project and we can't afford to pay you, so either you're in or you're out, no discussion. And they said, okay, we're in. Two, it, if this project works, you'll be in a book and you'll be in museums. And that's not bad, because that's a tiny slice of immortality. So there are worse things to aspire to. And the third thing is it's going to be fun, because life is way too short for a bad day in a photo studio. And so these are the results. And again, they don't really look like photographs. You can see it's real, because you can see every crease, every skin, every nail imperfection, the blood vessels under the skin. But it, it's real, but it can't be real but it's real, but it can't be real, but it's real, but it can't be real. And again, it's, it's teasing at your expectations of a photograph. No other visual art form has so much baggage as photograph. Everyone assumes this stuff about it being real and what it's showing and stuff. Just lose all that because none of that matters. The only thing that matters is what you do with it. Nothing else matters at all. And one of the interesting things actually about this, and we, we th thought about this a great deal, is the parallels between um, manga and Japanese woodblock prints. So this is by Yoshitoshi, and um, we came across, we hadn't seen this before we did the, the photo, we came across it a couple of years afterwards. But it's, a, <laughs> yeah, okay, we, we know we're deriving it from the same source when we see something like that. So, Originally, they were all going to have these very dramatic tableau-like backgrounds, and we have left some of them with the tableaus. But, um, and this is the one that's in the exhibition uh, downstairs, or, or just across the way. Um, and one of the great things about this work is it really gave people creative ways to display it. So, and this was in a museum in Quebec, the Museum of Civilization, and to this day we're really proud of this because this is a museum that is visited by school group after school group after school group, and you know how noisy school groups are in museums, right? And within 15 seconds of them walking into this room, every single time there was complete silence. Now, that's the future of a museum. If you can engage the next generation, if you can give them a sense of wonder that they want to go back to a museum, that is how a museum survives. That is how they will live in the future. So we thought this was very, very uh, successful and important for us. Um, and we decided that we would make some new works because we were so inspired by what we found in the museum here. And so the first one is a portrait of the violinist Ray Chen. Um, and it's nice to premiere it in the home of the Eastman School of Music. Uh, he didn't actually go to the Eastman School, he went to the Curtis. But this is a real superstar of the violin world, an absolute genius. Um, and we wanted to show him 
like a medieval troubadour, as it were, going from place to place because of the nomadic life of, of, a, um, of a musician. And uh, I, I, I know that uh, time is marching on, and I can assure you that we're close to the end, I do promise. Um, but uh, we, we wanted, and uh, we're, we're really pleased with this print, so please have a good look at it down there. W one of the other consequences of the Manga Dreams project was we were approached by a company that deals with fantasy and reality quite a lot, and they wanted us to do some work for them. And, and I can now honestly say, hand on my heart, you may think you don't already know our work, but you do. So have a look at the picture of Daisy Ridley there in the middle. And we approached Lucasfilm and Disney, and we said, look, we, we would like to make a new work out of our work, the, the shots of Daisy, for this exhibition. And incredibly touchingly, and given that these people do like to control what happens with their work, they, they told us, we trust you guys. What you did for us was wonderful. Just make whatever you want. We know it'll be fine. And so the last work in the exhibition is this new Manga Dreams style work. And if you look, it's got this, you know, the background is obviously drawn, the clothing is half drawn, half not drawn. It's got all the elements that make it a Manga Dreams work. At the same time, we wanted to retain the essence of Star Wars. Um, one slightly unexpected thing. So, does anyone here know what the name of Daisy's character is in Star Wars? Her name is Ray. So, Ray meets Ray. <laughs> in the Voyager's exhibition, um, the third quote in the exhibition is, it's hard to tell the difference between sea and sky, between Voyager and sea, between reality and the workings of the heart. And pretty much everything that we've shown you of our own work is a reflection of this. Uh, this third quote is not about... The, the first two quotes from Yeats and Proust, uh, Proust are about how we made the work, if you like, or how we came to see the work to be made. This is about how we felt when we were making it. And I'd li like to just finish with a quote from Nagatani um, from the Ryoichi excavations. Each of us has learned with the, that scientific truth and fact is perhaps less important than the existence and possibilities of the story. If the fiction has given more to us than fact, then this is the greatest truth. Even our photographs are artifacts of representation. We are in awe of the universe and the endless possibilities for stories that exist. So we would encourage you to find your own new eyes. And if you do, you will make your own wondrous voyages of discovery. And everything that we have shown in this exhibition and everything we've talked about in this talk is a reflection of the fact that if you just forget everything you know and just look at what's in front of you, sometimes you find extraordinary and wondrous things. And I hope that we encourage you to do it all as well. Thank you very much indeed.